A single ball of flame streaks across the South Carolina night, tracing a chalk-like arc against the star-speckled firmament. The mortar thuds, exploding above Fort Sumter, briefly illuminating the five-sided fort of thick brick and granite, topped by parapets that seems on any normal day to be floating peacefully in Charleston Harbor. This first shot from a Confederate artillery battery on James Island is intended as a signal, a beginning. Here at 4.30 a.m. on April 12, 1861, marking the commencement of what will become a 34-hour bombardment of this federal fort. The first shots of combat in the first battle of the American Civil War. Hi, everybody. You're listening to American History Hit. Welcome. I'm Don Wildman. The causes of the American Civil War have been the subject of historical discussion and debate since the conflict began. Either the Civil War was an inevitable conflict, undertaken to criminalize and destroy a hideous, immoral practice, the enslavement and trafficking of human beings, or it was fought over a legal and legislative schism concerning the rights of states to govern their own economies versus the powers imposed upon them by the U.S. government. Over time, these dual causes had the effect of splitting the debate and softening the argument. After the Southern surrender, as decades passed and the U.S. struggled to reunite itself, the broader reasons behind the South's insurrection were characterized, even romanticized, as a lost cause of a misunderstood people seeking only to preserve a way of life once permitted under the U.S. Constitution. Refer listeners to Gone with the Wind and a poor, victimized Scarlett O'Hara forced to make her gown out of drapes. Debate became dilemma, and it had legs. Still persists for many Americans today, the broader reasons behind the Civil War. Fortunately, for perspective and clarity, we can rely on the historical research conducted by professionals, such as our guest today, Professor Adam Smith, director at the Rothmere American Institute at the University of Oxford, author of The Stormy Present, Conservatism and the Problem of Slavery in Northern Politics, 1846 to 1865, called by the American Civil War Museum, the best book on the Civil War era. Goodness, high praise. Welcome, Adam Smith, to American History Hit. Nice to have you. Don, thanks. It's great to be here. Okay, so let's discuss the Civil War and why it happened. In a word, slavery, right? Right. How is this still a question? I, do, I think there's an interesting question about why it's still a question, but if you want one word answer, there is only one word answer, that is slavery. Your intro was absolutely spot on. There have been plenty of people who've tried to present the coming of the Civil War in other ways. But all those other ways, I mean, it's true that there was a conflict between federal authority and state authority. It's true that white Southerners in the run-up to the Civil War and thinking about it after the Civil War was over felt themselves to be beleaguered and put upon. And it's true that not everyone, by any means, who fought in the Northern Army for the Union wanted to end slavery. And that most people in the South didn't. It's true also that most people in the South did not themselves own slaves. All of that is true. And yet, none of it makes sense if you try to take slavery out of the equation. If you kind of try to imagine some hypothetical alternative universe in which everything else stays the same, but somehow or other slavery has disappeared everywhere from the United States, or perhaps that slavery existed everywhere. You know, it hadn't been abolished in the North, and it, so it existed everywhere in the United States. In either of those hypothetical scenarios, the Civil War 
the civil war that actually happened wouldn't have happened, right? It makes no sense. You can almost see it as a series of concentric circles, you know, all these causes of the civil war. At the dead center of it is slavery. Outside of that becomes states' rights, et cetera, et cetera. But it's essential to address that first issue is what you're saying. Those other issues are those of Western expansion, Supreme Court decisions sure. prior to the... I mean, there's a lot that happens. The federal structure itself, right? And so yeah. here's another way of looking at it. Of course, the United States is far from being the only country to have mm. slavery, to have the system in which you could buy and sell human beings, a legal system of chattel slavery. The British Empire had it. The French Empire had it. Brazil, all these other places. In those other places, slavery was abolished without a civil war. Why was that? Well, a simple answer is, in the British Empire, take that case, for example, slavery could be abolished by Parliament in Westminster passing a law, which they did. Slaveholders in the British West Indies and the Caribbean islands didn't like it, but there was nothing they could do. In the United States, a fundamental difference is Congress could never, even if it had got a majority, could never pass a law abolishing slavery everywhere in the United States. Slavery was a state-based institution. And because of the strength of state governments in the 19th century, far more relatively strong than today, of course, the federal government much, much weaker, it meant that the prospect of secession, of saying, well, if there's any threat from the federal government, if we're not getting, if the southern states could think, if we're not getting everything we want and we need and we're used to getting from the United States as it used to be configured, we've got a very viable alternative option, which the slaveholders in the British Caribbean didn't have, which the slaveholders in Brazil didn't have. In those other cases, slaveholders in effect bargained with the anti-slavery forces in their countries. What will you give me in return for giving up slavery? And they got a lot in return for bargaining. The United States didn't have to bargain. They thought we can have it all. We're running our own state governments anyway. We can just leave the federal union and we can just carry on as we were before. That's an amazing option that they had. So the federal structure itself also has to be part of the story. I'm going to plug a radio series you did back in 2011 for the BBC in which I listened to something I'd never heard before, which was a fascinating mention. I think it was David Blight, who wrote a big book on Frederick Douglass, mentions the word revolution. And I had never really thought about the Southern secession as a form of revolution. We are raised in this country to think of the South, correctly so, as a rebellion. But he calls it a revolution. And that's a fascinating distinction because the South really thought of themselves as creating a new nation. This was, you know, on par with the American Revolution. It really was for the purposes of creating a new government, for preserving the lifestyle that they thought they deserved, the traditions that had been guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution to that point. I mean, they were basically setting up a whole new shop. We call it a rebellion because it failed. Yeah. If it had succeeded... <laughs> We would call it the Confederate Revolution of 1861, which is what Southerners at the time often referred to it as. And they used very directly exactly the same language that had been used by the colonists in 1776. Government has to be based on the consent of the government. They invoked George Washington. They invoked the Declaration of Independence. They thought they were replaying for their generation, what their forefathers had done in the 1770s. I don't know why I find that refreshing information, you know, a, a new kind of take for me after all these years of thinking about it. But it, it does for some reason. It sort of energizes it in a different way. I tell you what, Don, I think listeners may have noticed by this stage that I'm not myself American, although yes. I work on American history. I and did uh, notice that. I obviously spent many years and a lot of time in my life in the United States, but I now have this job based in England at the University of Oxford. 
perhaps it's because I'm not American, that it seems to me that in a way, the least difficult thing to explain about the coming of the Civil War is why the South seceded. Seems to me, I mean, that's an interesting question, don't get me wrong. There's lots of reasons why, as it turned out, it was a foolish miscalculation. But I think I can understand it from their point of view, why white Southerners felt threatened by the Republican Party, threatened by Abraham Lincoln, threatened by the federal government, and why they thought it was a risk they could safely take. That seems to me to be the least of the problems we have to explain. More problematic, in my mind, perhaps because I'm not American, is why in response to secession, did the Union, did the North, did the federal government, why were they willing to expend such a massive amount of blood and treasure in crushing that rebellion? Why was maintaining the Union such a high moral cause that it was worth that four years of extraordinary bloody conflict? I think in a way that to me, in my historical work, that's always been a harder and more interesting question than why did the South secede? Yeah. And of course, you have to answer that question in order to understand the war, right? Because, you know, the South could have seceded and there'd have been no war if the North had said, as a few people argued, let the Erring Sisters go in peace. Just let them go. Plenty of other secessions have happened around the world in the 19th century, in the 20th century, in the 21st century, and we don't go to war over them. You know, if Quebec had left Canada, there wouldn't have been a war. If Scotland secedes from the United Kingdom, I'm not going to volunteer to fight to maintain the union of the United Kingdom. Yeah. I don't think there'll be a war then, right? There's lots of other circumstances. So why was it in 1861 that war was the response to secession? Sure. Well, I think you have to unpack it. You really do, because it's a complicated issue that we've already mentioned the various facets. You have political factors you have economic factors, and you also have plenty of moral factors. And I think in those days, really, morality had become a very forefront issue. It had been decades that this had been discussed. I think that the English prohibition of slavery was a big, big headline in American society, certainly in the North. And it was time to address this hideousness. I mean, you have to, I mean, we talk it intellectually. I mean, I'm, I'm even uncomfortable with this at this point in, the, in my life to even be discussing it as some sort of interesting intellectual problem when it was just awful. You know, it's just an ugly, horrible crime against humanity that had been going on for hundreds of years at this point. So put yourself in the position of anyone who had a brain in those days. It was time to end this. That was really important. It was really important for many Americans white Americans, obviously also for black Americans, to end slavery. There's no question. And as you say, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire and then the abolition of slavery for the second time in the French Empire, but especially the British abolition, created an environment in the mid-19th century where to many Northerners, to most Northerners, it felt like slavery was, to quote the platform of the Republican Party, a relic of barbarism. It was something of the past. It was something that was going to go eventually. Surely we need to get rid of it now if we're going to move forward as this modern republic leading the world, the biggest economy in the world and all this. And slavery is this hideous, barbaric thing that is ha holding us back, right? That was the mentality of, of millions of people in the North. If you went and talked to white Southerners, though, in the 1850s and 60s, they would give you a different view. They would say... Well, actually, slavery is a very modern institution. We are using enslaved people not just to pick cotton. We are using enslaved people to in our new factories. We're using them to lay railroad lines. We are 
acknowledging in a way that Northerners and British people don't acknowledge that any society that there's ever been has, in their words, a subordinate class in the slums of Manchester or the East End of London or New York City. That subordinate class are white and uh, live in poverty and degradation. In the South, they would say that subordinate class is black and they claimed kind of, you know, appallingly, but they claimed that those enslaved black people had better lives than did the white working class in the North. So they completely confronted that argument about it being a, bar a legacy of barbarism. They said, no, it's the wave of the future. And so the audaciousness of Southern secession in 1860-61 was to affirm proudly that in the words of the vice president of the Confederacy, slavery was to be the cornerstone of this new republic. It was not just an accidental thing that happened to still linger on. It was something, not something that we should be ashamed of and embarrassed about and explain away. We should say, no, absolutely, this is the way we're organizing our society. And it's a great success to do so. And that was a really challenging, nasty argument for then for Northerners to have to confront because they felt like they were being gaslit, as it were, to use a modern expression by that argument. There's so much, uh, you know, subtlety in this discussion because, of course, there's gigantic racism in the North. I'm speaking from New York. Slavery had had a very strong past as a Northern institution as well. So, I mean, there were still legally held enslaved people in New York State in 1850. Exactly. So, even the mid Atlantic states, when they abolished slavery, did it so gradually that the legacy still lingered for, for many years afterwards. And racism, we've got to understand here that racism and anti-slavery are obviously connected, but they are definitely separable, right? It was not just possible. It was the normal thing for anti-slavery abolitionist people to be in other respects, by judged by 21st standards, to be profoundly racist. You know, you could be in favor of abolishing slavery, but also be in favor of removing black people from the United States altogether. That was Indeed, that was a, the common position of most anti-slavery activists through much of the early 19th century. Yeah. For anyone who's, you know, rusty on all this stuff, let's just go through a few facts. The secession movement begins in the 1850s. I mean, the real strategic moves of, of what happens. Eventually, a provisional Confederate government is established in response to Abraham Lincoln's election, which happens, you know, the election of 1860. So 1861, he's, he's inaugurated. February 1861, this government is created. Seven states, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas. They're the original group that secedes. This is the most, it's called the worst crisis that ever happens in the United States history in terms of the function and survival of this country. Later, four more, North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, and most importantly, I would say, Virginia, join this thing. Adam, let's back up a little bit. I want to talk about a very important factor in this. There's several of them, but let's, let's start with Dred Scott. 1857, the Dred Scott case. I want to know something. How much did Americans in the North know about the effects of this, long-term effects of this decision that happened? And we're talking about the Dred Scott case it's a Supreme Court decision that basically declares the inferiority of the black race in America. This was a cornerstone for all the arguments of why slavery should persist, why it is justifiable. How much did the North know about what this really meant? It was up to this point, and even thinking in terms of all the famous Supreme Court cases of the last 70 years that your listeners will know about, the Dred Scott decision 
was by far the most important Supreme Court decision there's ever been in United States history in terms of its immediate impact and its longer term consequences. You're totally right in your description of the Dred Scott case, Don, and the implications of that. It was absolutely electrifying because the implication of the reasoning of the justices in the Dred Scott case was not only that the federal government could not constitutionally ban slavery from, for example, the territories in the West that hadn't yet become states, but potentially at least that no state could constitutionally ban slavery. Because the core of the case was that to take an enslaved person away from someone who claimed to be their owner violated their Fifth Amendment rights. You know, they couldn't be denied property without due process of law. And if an enslaved person was property, you couldn't just, a government couldn't take it away. Now, if that applied to the federal government, which the Dred Scott case said it did, there's no good legal reason why it would not also apply to the state of Massachusetts or the state of New York. The Dred Scott decision didn't directly do that, but immediately everybody in the North started talking about, quote, the next Dred Scott decision, right, which would take the legal logic of Dred Scott to that next stage. So in other words, the threat of Dred Scott was the nationalization of slavery. And it's really important that we have this in our minds when we think about the escalating crisis that led to war in 1861. That idea that Northerners themselves felt threatened by the South. Southerners felt threatened by the North, but Northerners also felt threatened by the South. It was one thing. Many Northerners, most Northerners tried not to think about slavery if they could avoid it, right? Just as people buying cheap clothes don't think about the sweatshops in Bangladesh or China in which they've been made, right? Most of us are very good in our daily lives at compartmentalizing. And you can say, if you said to most Northerners in 1850 or 1855, is slavery right or wrong? they'd have said, oh, slavery is wrong. If you then said to them, what are you going to do about it? Well, that's a whole different matter, right? That's a lot more complicated. But here you have a situation after the Dred Scott decision, well, all of a sudden, they're thinking, well, I live in New York. I live in Illinois. I live in Massachusetts. Slavery is somebody else's problem. Slavery is over there. I've never seen an enslaved person, right? I've never, never seen one. But now they're being told by politicians and by newspaper editors interpreting plausibly, interpreting the Dred Scott decision, they're being told, hey, it won't be long before enslavers, slaveholders from the South, can move freely into the North with their so-called property, with their enslaved people. And what's the implication of that? Of course, depressing wages, bringing black people here, if you're a racist white Northerner, as, as many of them were. You know, this is profoundly threatening and unsettling. I'm not saying that's the whole thing. I'm not by any means saying this is the main thing. But that's a, an important component in people's real anxiety about the Dred Scott decision. It really is where uh, the line blurs between slavery and states' rights being the one or the other cause. This one straddles both. I just want to share with you an experience I had recently. Uh, I was in Minnesota. I was in Minneapolis. And, and there was a fort there, Fort Snelling, which is where Dred Scott lived for years in a room in this fort. Had a whole life. I mean, had the hearth, had a furniture. The man existed and lived in that fort. I mean, this was not a sort of created crisis. This is like based on common sense. And yet, because he was living in a free state, and made the argument that I am now free, it came to the Supreme Court to make this decision. 
and they came down on the fact that he was an inferior being and that, uh, you know, property is property, et cetera, et cetera, like you said. This begins to create a whole problem between the federal government and the states on a new kind of level, right? This is changing that argument somewhat. Exactly. And interestingly, what it did, we talk about states, right? States rights are important in coming in terms of the coming of the Civil War. And understandably, we usually think about that in terms of the way that Southerners started to articulate the defense of states against the federal government. But actually, in the 1850s, it was much more often Northerners who used that phrase, who used that language. Northerners were really frightened that their ability to exclude slavery was being undermined. The Dred Scott decision did that massively, but so too did the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which, for the, which was a massive expansion in federal government power. It gave the federal government the right to send armed men into northern free states in order to reclaim runaway enslaved people. And to northerners, this was as offensive as anything that the redcoats had done in the run-up to the revolution. Right, This was a brutal extension of federal government power. So lots of northern states passed what they call personal liberty laws, which were in effect an attempt to nullify a federal law, exactly what the South Carolinians had done in the 1830s, attempting to nullify a federal tariff, which they felt would discriminate against their ability to export slave-grown crops. So it was the Northerners who were upset about states' rights, at least as much as the Southerners in the 1850s. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. The other factor in the North that's very interesting and important to consider is that a whole different economy had, you know, evolved over the 19th century. This is the, the Industrial Revolution taking hold in the North. Factories are run with free labor. It's this new era beginning where you don't need as many workers as you used to need with farms. I mean, that's essentially the problem in the South is you can't run these enormous plantations without enormous amounts of labor. And you can't make it viable unless that labor is free. In the North, something different is happening. And that's because of the rise of the factory system, right? Yeah. And the urbanization that goes along with it and the development of the economy along industrial lines that included factory labor. And the sense that grew alongside it, this intensified and this we think of perhaps as this sort of very American ideal of being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, being able to make your own way in the world, right? This And Lincoln 
Abraham Lincoln, more than anyone else, kind of embodied this idea in terms of his own personal life story, his his own sort of from rise from from poverty through the legal profession. In his case, in fact, acting as a well played railroad lawyer in the in the eighteen fifties and into in into politics, but it also in terms of what he said, the vision that Lincoln offered his electorate in eighteen sixty was of a free labor society in which each man would be responsible for himself. And I'm using the gendered language deliberately because obviously that's what they used. Each man would be responsible for himself. They, they would have the opportunity in the free market, capitalist, industrializing United States to acquire property, productive property, whether that was land or whether that was a factory of their own or whether that was a workshop or whatever, and to be able to stand on their own two feet. And slavery, the enslavement to another human being, Lincoln said again and again and again, was the antithesis of that. It was the opposite of everything that the American dream stood for. And the American dream, actually the phrase didn't exist until later. The ideas contained within it had existed earlier. But it somehow needed that combination of industrialization, the large increasing immigrant population, the new possibilities in the big cities, that kind of sense of movement and dynamism and expansion that the North experienced in the 1840s and 50s in a way that was much less true at, at any rate in the South because, as you say, of the dominance of big agriculture, you know, these big plantations on which the Southern economy was so reliant. The phenomenon of the Civil War being justified, like this is just a huge, horrific thing that's about to happen. How did the information that we're talking about, these very high-minded ideas, get communicated to the common man who was now going man, being the intentional gender there I'm, I'm choosing as well? How did the common man in, in the North, let alone in the South, understand this conflict in those terms? Because there were limited outlets in which to learn these things. It's an extraordinary factor in this whole story. Yeah, it's a great question. I think so. Another thing to layer into why did the Civil War happen when it did and why it did? Printing and and the mass circulation of newspapers and in a very literate society, the 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 telegraph. This was an age of the mass consumption of news, the like of which the world had never seen before, and which other countries didn't have to anything like the same degree at this time. It was a little bit like you might think the present day United States, though, in this respect in that the newspapers people were reading were highly partisan, right? They, they were being fed a particular vision of the world, just as people consuming Fox News are seeing the world have a different set of facts offered to them, as it were, than do the, the watchers of MSNBC or whatever. And in the same way, the newspaper you chose to read helped to define the way in which you saw the world. So too did the churches to preachers. You know, this, of course... The United States, a highly religious society in relative terms. And you earlier rightly referred to this slavery as this, among other things, this big moral crisis. And, uh, and of course, it was then. If people are come to believe, as they did by the end of the 1850s, that somehow at stake here was the whole future of freedom for human beings on earth, you know, that the clash that was being embodied, that was about to be fought out, was this millennial clash. You know, when the war came, people saw it and read it in those ways. This is a holy war 
Southerners saw it in this way. Northerners saw it in this way as well. There's no compromise, right, at that point. They they have to devastate to destroy the other in in order to do God's work, and that doesn't apply to everybody. Just as thinking in those kinds of millennial terms doesn't apply to everybody in the United States today, but as an important component in explaining the dynamic in how people could be radicalized and mobilized and come to see the other as their enemy, come to see that this is a zero-sum game. If the other guy wins, if the South wins, if the slaveholders retain or expand their control of the federal government, then my freedom goes. Never mind this sort of abstract sense of some enslaved person back down in South Carolina where I've never been. My freedom is going to be compromised by that. So if they win, I lose, and vice, and vice versa. And that, of course, is a very, very dangerous situation for any society policy to get itself into. I think you're right. I mean, that's a big part of it that you don't hear a lot about. It does go hand in hand with Manifest Destiny, doesn't it? That, that we have this moment in time in the middle of the 19th century where this will be the moment that we you know, turn towards the defining civilization, the defining society that will define human civilization. And if we don't straighten these things out now, how are we going to do that when we own this whole continent and we are the primary society? I mean, some of that pans out. <laughs> the last best hope yes. of Earth. Yes. Right? We are the last best hope of Earth. And think about that, right? That's Lincoln's phrase, of course. Think about what that means. You know, if we don't win this war, Lincoln said at Gettysburg in November 1863, I'm obviously paraphrasing, we don't win this war then government and popular government of by for the people will perish forever everywhere. I mean, think about the stakes, right? I mean, they're not just fighting this war for them there and now, for their generation. This isn't like Bismarck in Germany 10 years later saying this is about national consolidation because our nation is a great nation. It's saying our nation is the carrier of the possibility of freedom everywhere. Wow. I mean, you can look ahead and see that how would the rise of Nazism be defeated without this earlier iteration being discussed and, and battled out? It's really fascinating. So we have layered in long-term issues that have been discussed for a generation at least, having to do with morality, economics, politics. All of this sort of is the bed of the thinking behind this. The issue is energized by the election of Abraham Lincoln, 1860. He takes office 1861. How much does Lincoln, is he the wedge issue that creates all the secession, etc.? Yeah, the election of 1860 is the critical thing here. So Lincoln, the, the Republican Party at that time, many listeners will know this, the Republican Party was an anti-slavery party. Historians debate how strongly anti-slavery it was, whether it was an abolitionist party. But let's just say... Republicans all agreed that slavery was wrong, right? So for the first time ever, well, with the partial exception of John Quincy Adams, for the first time, there's a president in the White House who thinks slavery is wrong. Now, he can't abolish slavery. Obviously, president can't do that. Congress can't do that. But he's only there because the Republican Party has mobilized pretty much all of the electoral college votes in the free states. And although he's only got 40% of the popular vote nationally, he's able to win in the Electoral College by unifying the North. Now, the terrifying thing for the South there is that if Lincoln can do that in 1860, he or some other Republican can do it next time around and next time around and next time around. The South are a decreasing minority and they have lost control of the federal government and they're used to running it, right? From Washington through to James Buchanan, slaveholders or allies of slaveholders 
have been in the White House, with the exception of two terms of John Adams and John Quincy Adams, I would say. Otherwise, they've been ruling the whole thing. They obviously control the Supreme Court, hence the Dred Scott decision. They've been used to pretty much running Congress as well. So they've suddenly lost control of a crucial element of the federal government, the presidency. And that's terrifying. And there's nothing they can do. I mean, almost nobody in the South voted for Lincoln, but it didn't matter. They were lost anyway. So the election of Lincoln was critical. Lincoln underestimated the threat of secession. I think there'd been so much hot air. There'd been so many threats. There'd been so much talk about secession and disunion for, for decades that I think Lincoln, like many people, were like, oh, we'll, we'll muddle through somehow. Just like many people in the United States today still think, oh, we'll muddle through. It'll all be all right. We're not really going to end democracy or whatever. It's all going to be fine. But that's what people said in 1860. I'm not saying they're wrong today, no, but they were wrong in 1860. So he underestimated the threat and he was taken aback by it, right? And by the time he, as you said earlier, by the time he, the, in those days, the inauguration was not until March after the election in November. By the time he took office, secession was already an accomplished fact. Wasn't something to be warded off in the future. There were already, as you've said, seven states that already declared themselves independent. And the question then was simply, what does Lincoln do about that established fact? And he tried to be very cautious about it. He tried to say, we will not assail you if you don't assail us. He tried to say, but on the other hand, of course, he just sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution. And so he said, well, we will continue to provision the few little out federal outposts still in seceded states, the most important, as it turned out, being the federal fort and Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. South Carolina had seceded. Charleston was in the hands of the state government, the Confederacy. But there was this little island with the small garrison of United States soldiers. Lincoln tried to resupply Sumter. And in advance of the supply ship arriving, the South Carolina authorities opened fire on the fort after having demanded their surrender and not received it. And that was the shot that started the war. Yes, and thus the Civil War is undertaken. Four years of horrible, frightening moments worthy of another podcast series. But this one tells me something, too. This is a fascinating example of how universal this discussion really is and how world-shaking the American Civil War really became. Professor Adam Smith is the director at the Rothmere American Institute at the University of Oxford. I want listeners to be aware of his own podcast series, which I invite you to listen to. It's called The Last Best Hope. It is from the REI. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Many episodes available. I also steer you towards an important book, which he is the author of, The Stormy Present, Conservatism and the Problem of Slavery in Northern Politics. His next book is coming out. It's about the Battle of Gettysburg. It comes out later in the year. I invite you to uh, pay attention to this author, Adam Smith. He won the Jefferson Davis Award. How weird is that that they give the Jefferson Davis Prize? I don't get that I at all. I don't think they do anymore, actually. I'm so I think uncomfortable I have the with the invidious that. distinction of being the, the last or second but last winner. <laughs> oh, my God. I've said this several times on this podcast. I'm like, who gives a Jefferson Davis <laughs> Award? It's so weird. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate you coming on the show. We'll see you again. Thank you, Don. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to American History Hit. You know, every week we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of content from mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great. 
but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share it with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.